with you guys. Grab your Bibles, open them to Daniel chapter 9, and we're going to be in uh, verse 20. And I'm not going to make you stand because Pastor Ryan made you stand for announcements, and you guys are probably exhausted after that, right? <laughs> so much extra standing. I mean, good night. He's like, I'm going to leave that church. Too much standing. Not Protestant enough. Okay. Daniel chapter 9, and I'm actually going to start with just reading the whole text, and then we'll... We'll pray and work our way through it. Daniel chapter 9. It's right after Daniel chapter 8, and it's right before Daniel chapter 10. All right, let's read it. While I was speaking and praying, Confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel. Uh, We are in Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. Yes. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, or tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people, and your holy city, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks." Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Probably don't even need to explain that, right? Okay. Well, let's just close in prayer and we'll go home. Let's pray. Father, this text, this text, Lord, is so dear is so precious, and it is so daunting. Lord, I feel humbled this week. I don't feel adequate uh, or, or uh, prepared enough. Lord, I pray that you would speak because it's so clear that you know what's going on in the, in the universe and in the world. It's so clear, God, that you are doing huge things, that you understand the times and the seasons. 
Lord, that your redemptive program for human history, for the universe, is right on target. Lord, that you are in control of all things. And this morning, God, I pray that, that as we descend into what can be a very cloudy and weedy forest of textual disagreement, that, God, we would remain in a state of worship and clarity, and that, Lord, above all, we would be encouraged to know that, Jesus, you are supreme, and you are coming back, and you are a saving God. When we trust you, we ask you, Holy Spirit, to lead us this morning through this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this is the text that I knew we were going to get to uh, when we started the book of Daniel, and so here we go. Uh, let me just kind of start by saying this. You know, God is um, always doing something much bigger and much better and much more beautiful than you could possibly imagine or even think to ask him to do. God is doing things that go beyond your mental capacity to even request, He's doing really, really big things. The size of our desires and our requests are often limited by the size of our imagination. And Paul the Apostle said to, to the Ephesians in uh, Ephesians 3.20, he said, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or even think, according to the power at work within us. So God is doing bigger things than we could even possibly imagine if I were to ask my, my little two-year-old, uh, Asher, if I were to ask him, he just turned two, he knows a couple of words, and, uh, and his favorite words are baba, which is, you know, bottle, uh, dada. Uh, he loves to say up. That's like up, right? Those are his words, right? So if I go to Asher and I say, buddy, I'll give you anything I have, anything, anything I can give you, what, what would I want? He would probably look around and point at, a baba or something. That's, that's all he knows to ask for. It's, all, it's, it's his limited scope, right? He doesn't have the capacity yet to even understand what is out there for him, what he could even ask for. And in many ways, when we come to God with our prayers and we say, Lord, would you, or Lord, could you, or Lord, this is the desire of my heart, like we're, we're kind of basically saying baba. We don't even really know what God has in mind for us. We don't even understand the storehouses, the eternal riches, the goodness of the things that he has in mind. We're so much bigger than we can ever possibly imagine. My daughter said something insightful yesterday. She, I think we were, uh, she was basing it off a conversation about heaven. And we always say, you know, I think in heaven there's going to be colors that we've never even seen before. And she just insightfully said, it's hard to imagine there being colors that I haven't seen. And I'm like, Is it, isn't that true? How do you imagine something that you've never seen? The reality is God, God is doing things bigger than you can imagine, bigger than you can even think. And, and oftentimes our prayers, God answers, and then he answers them way more full than, than we even would have thought to ask. I believe that the gospel, and the gospel alone, is the best news for humanity. It's the best possible news. It answers every question that we as human, humans want answered. What, what is it that we really want? What is it that we really need as human beings? I think three things. If you want to write them down, just three basic things. We want, first of all, we want to be okay with who we are, right? Second of all, we want to be okay with where we are. And thirdly, we want to be, or we want to know that uh, the reason why we are, okay? We want to be okay with who we are. 
We want to be okay where we are, and we want to know the reason why we are. In other words, why do we exist? We want to know that we are okay with who we are, that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that we are whole. We want to be okay with where we are, that, that, that where we're headed and the things in our life are right. And lastly, we want to know why we are. Those three things, that's, that's the basic idea uh, of what a human needs to thrive. And my suggestion is that the gospel answers every single one of those facets. It is the good news that every human is longing to find. So what does this have to do with Daniel? Uh, last week, if you remember, we looked at the first half of chapter 9, and last week we saw this prayer of Daniel. We essentially saw Daniel coming to God and saying, Baba. We basically saw him saying, God, would you do this? And it's a good prayer. It's a good petition. If you remember the backdrop for that, Daniel was reading his Bible, and he's reading uh, the book of Jeremiah, and he comes across the prophecies in which Jeremiah predicted uh, by the Holy Spirit that Israel would be out of exile, free from exile in 70 years, that the captivity was going to be 70 years long. So Daniel is uh, reading the word, and he's also reading the times, and he's reading his people, and he's going, okay, God is about to move here. God has promised he's going to set us free, send us home from the exile, because it was predicted 70 years. And it was just about 70 years since they had come into captivity, and things were in motion, and things were in place. So Daniel, rather than becoming complacent, he engages the Lord in prayer. We talked about this last week. He prays the promises of God. He brings the promises to God, and he prays this beautiful petition in verses 1 through 19 of chapter 9. This beautiful prayer asking for God to show mercy to Israel, asking for God to be, uh, to, to forgive, not because of the righteousness of Israel, but because of the mercy of God. He's basically praying this prayer God, can we go home? We've been in exile. I mean, Daniel grew up his whole life in exile. He was an old man at this point in his 80s. The Persians have now taken over Babylon. He's seen all these different administrations, all these different kings. He's served, served as a statesman for, for, many, many decades, and he just wants to go home. And his prayer of petition is very simple. God, can we go home? Can we be made righteous again? Because see, Israel wasn't righteous. They, they were covenant breakers. They had cheated on their spouse, God, breaking the Mosaic covenant, not honoring Sabbath. They were Sabbath breakers. They were idolaters. And Daniel, a man of God, is confessing his sin and the sin of his people, pleading for God, can we go home? Can you bring in righteousness? Can we put an end to iniquity? Can we be made whole? Can the temple be rebuilt? And can you do it for the sanctity of your name and for your holiness? And this is the prayer. This is the request of Daniel. And what's so exciting about our text is our text is the answer to the prayer. Bless you. Our text is the answer to the prayer. Our text is God saying, oh, Daniel, I'm going to answer your prayer more than you would have even thought to ask me. I'm going to answer your prayer and then some. Our passage is the answer. It is the better yes to Daniel's prayer that he never even would have imagined to ask for. What God is going to do this morning in this text is he's going to elevate Daniel's perspective from looking at just ethnic Israel and just the exile in Babylon to a much greater reality, a much greater redemptive program that God is stitching together through all out of, throughout all of history. God is going to elevate Daniel's perspective and widen out his screen to see that God is doing a much bigger thing and that he has decreed it. 
God is not just going to restore some people for a time. God is going to redeem all of his people for all of time. God is not just going to rebuild a temple. He is going to establish an eternal holy place forever. God is not just going to show mercy and forgiveness. He's going to bring in eternal righteousness, putting an end to sin and atoning for all iniquity. God's not just going to give more promises. He's going to seal up forever word and prophecy, bringing the final yes to every promise that God has ever made. And he's going to do it through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what our text is about this morning. In short, the gospel comes to Daniel. The gospel comes to Daniel. It's the decree of God's saving program. And he's going to see it packed into a matter of a few verses. And consequentially, let me just tell you a few things about these verses, okay? First of all, these verses that we're going to look at are one of the, it's one of the most impressive predictions in all the Bible. Second of all, it's one of the most important predictions in all the Bible. It's also one of the most argued about prophecies, and I'm not exaggerating. I probably had to study more this week for this passage than I've had to for any other text. It's ridiculous, okay? (laughs) I'm exhausted, okay? I was drinking coffee last night at like 6 p.m., and my wife's like, why are you drinking coffee? I'm like, because I'm going to be up till midnight working on this sermon, okay? And then I was up at 4, continuing to work on this. I'm a little loopy, okay? This text is so complex, and you'll see. (laughs) You're going to feel the same way. I'm going to make sure you feel the way I feel right now by the time we're done. If your brain doesn't hurt at the end, I've failed. Here's the thing, though. The main thing, I didn't, I didn't coin this phrase. This is an old phrase. The main thing is the plain thing. And the plain thing is what? The main thing. Okay. And here's what's beautiful about this text. We could spend the rest of our lives writing books about certain things that are not the main thing. But the main thing of this text is the plain thing, and the plain thing is the main thing. And we're going to see that. And if we don't see that this morning, then I've failed. Okay? We are going to embark on this journey this morning into what is really kind of a high vista point where we're going to see with great clarity the mountain of God's redemptive program, and then we're going to shortly descend into the abyss of details within the topography of things that we cannot really fully understand, okay? So high, low, okay? You guys ever do that? Like, wow, look at the valley. It's so pretty. Now we, oh, now we're in, okay. So we're going to do that. That's that's the whole thing. And here's what we don't want to do, okay? What I don't want to do is this. Like, imagine you got on an airplane tonight, and you flew to Australia, okay? And you get off the plane in Australia, and all you can talk about and all you can think about is the fact that, man, the drink cart came a little later than you thought, and, you know, the person next to you was, like, spilling into your aisle, which is always frustrating, right? And, 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 and the, the, you know, like, like they're taking your armrest, right? Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, not, okay, yeah. <laughs> Keep going, Sam. Don't, don't get derailed. Okay, okay. And you get off the plane, like, it was five minutes later than I thought, and it's all you can think about, and you forget to, to really mention the fact that you just got on a piece of metal, and magically appeared in less than 24 hours on the other side of the globe. Okay, that's exactly what I think people do with this text. They get so lost in the minutia, and they start arguing about all these little details, they forget about the fact that, holy cow, God predicted this through the prophet Daniel. It's incredible, and we ought not to lose sight of that. 
with the weeds, okay? So let me tell you that our disposition this morning, and you may not like this, I know some of you guys would prefer that I take a very hard stance on some of these things, and that, sorry, okay? Our, our, our stance is gonna be that of charity, humility, curiosity, and confidence in scriptural inerrancy, okay? God's word has it right. We may not, that's, that's humility, okay? Um, we're, we're gonna recognize that there are different ways to interpret this text, and we're going to give honor and respect to those different ways because they're all within, listen to me, they're all within biblical orthodoxy, okay? The ways that I'm gonna at least mention to you today. There are some that are outside of orthodoxy, but we're not gonna get into those. Let me give you the outline of the passage. It breaks into three parts. Uh, the setting, verse 20 through 23. The summary, verse 24. And the sequence, 25 through 27. That's kind of going to be our, our shell uh, to hold the passage. Let's start working our way through it. Setting, the summary, and the sequence. First, the setting. Verse 20. Let's dive in. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So let me first say this is a little different than a lot of what we've been looking at in Daniel because a lot of the revelation that we've been seeing in Daniel has come through apocalyptic vision. But this is not apocalyptic vision, this is angelic visitation. Okay, and an angel, Gabriel, appears to Daniel as he's praying the prayer that we studied last week. In the middle, in fact, probably towards the beginning of the prayer, he's praying in chapter 9, an angel, Gabriel, appears to Daniel and interrupts his prayer. Now, this is clearly supposed to connect. So whatever we make of this text, it has to connect to its context, which is what? The prayer of Daniel. The two have to come. What people do is they rip this thing right out of its context, and they start looking at dates and charts and graphs, and they forget the fact that this is part of a bigger context. The context is the prayer of Daniel. Daniel is asking God to work on behalf of his people. And God is so excited to answer the prayer that he sends Gabriel to interrupt him right in the middle of it to let him know that he answered it. That's basically what we're looking at here. It says, while he was praying. It says, the angel came in swift flight. And in verse 23, we'll even see that it was at the beginning of his plea. So God is so pumped to let Daniel know that his answer has come. God not only hears our prayers, he loves to answer them. We talked about that last week, right? He loves to answer them. Now, I think it's worth noting, by the way, that this angel comes during, as Daniel puts it, the time of the evening sacrifice, now, first of all, just from an interesting side note, uh, Daniel's been out of Jerusalem for something like probably 65 years. So when's the last time he had an evening sacrifice? So, but he still thinks his timeline still rotates around God's system of worship, okay? And so that's worth noting, but also it's, it's, I think it's a narrative um, note of melody here. The melodic line here of this text is that this, this whole thing centers around atonement and the temple and the city of God and the people of God. So whatever we're going to see here, it's going to kind of orbit around that topic. Now, I, I think it's worth noting, by the way, and very, very important, that there's a particular angel that's selected by God to go and give the answer to this prayer to Daniel. Who is it? It's Gabriel. What do we know about Gabriel? What's the significance of Gabriel? Um, well, 
he's popped up one other time in the book of Daniel, but let me tell you why I think Gabriel's significant. Because God later selects Gabriel to bring another message to a couple of other saints. Who are those saints? Mary, Zechariah. The announcement of the arrival of Messiah, I think, is meant to hyperlink for us the arrival of Jesus Christ and the prophecy we're looking at today because both are really declarations of the gospel. Gabriel, by no accident, is selected to be the one to bring this news, this decree to Daniel. Look at verse 22. Now, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, we learn some things here about the nature and the purpose of this vision. First of all, we learn that this vision, its purpose is to bring understanding, not infighting or obfuscation, okay? Uh, And that's a lot of times what it brings. And I think if it brings those things, we're missing the point. If this causes you to argue, not, not have a nice civil theological conversation. I don't know about those. But if this, if this causes you to, then, then you're missing the point here. The point is it's supposed to bring understanding. The other thing I want you to see is that it's sourced in God's love for Daniel. Do you see that? It says, uh, at the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. It's been said that clarity is kindness. God's love is often manifest in us that he shares his redemptive plan with us. God loves Daniel, and he wants Daniel to know what's going on. Jesus said a similar thing to his disciples. John 15, 15, he said, No longer do I call you servants, for servant, the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Same idea here. God is saying, I love you so much that I'm inviting you to see my redemptive story arc here. I'm, re- I'm inviting you to see what I'm doing. Now, There's two things here that I think form guardrails in verse 23 in terms of how we're supposed to interpret this. It says, therefore, consider the word, 23, therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, you could ask this question and you would be very justified in asking this question. What's the point of even studying this thing if it's so confusing? And I would say there's two guardrails here. One is, it has to be understandable because the whole point of it was that Daniel would have understanding. So if it's not understandable, then we're missing the point, right? But at the same time, Daniel's given this mandate to consider it, which means you got to think about it, okay? You got to think hard about it. So I'm going to challenge you guys to think hard this morning. So I think the two guardrails are if, if it's too simple, then we're probably not considering it. But if it's too ununderstandable, then we're probably over-exegeting it. We're overthinking it. We're overworking it, okay? So we need to find kind of that, that balance as we work our way through it. So let's, let's dive in now to the, the, the decree. Here it is, verse 24. And this is the most important verse, so tune in here, and we'll come back to it later. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to six things. Are you ready? To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. 
Now, without opening any commentaries, who does that sound like to you? Okay, there's the main thing, okay? There's the main thing. This verse, verse 24, is a summary. Remember I said it's like climbing a mountain? You get to the mountain, you get a good view, and then you start dropping down into the lake or whatever, and it gets real fuzzy, okay? 24 is the crest of the mountain, it's the big idea. It's the thing that God is going to do. And there's a sense in which verse 24, this is kind of a big word, uh, there's a sense in which 24 is transhistorical. It's the ultimate outcome of all of history. It's the ultimate outcome of all of God's redemptive work. It's the big picture when God is completely done saving in the world. This is what we're going to see. We're going to see these six things happening. It's the sum total of God's redemptive plan. And verse 24 does not seem to be concerned, at least I don't think, with the sequence. It's the summation. It's the summation, not the sequence. These are the things that are going to happen when the kingdom of God is fully at hand. I want you to think of a telescope, okay? Verse 24 is like a telescope. When you close it, it looks like all those layers are together. When you open it up, it turns out they happen at different times, so verse 24 is a summary, not a sequence. And it is unmistakably, and everybody agrees on this, that's, I think this is a Christian, unmistakably refers to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. That's the part everybody agrees on. Isn't that good news? It's just like the book of Revelation. Everybody argues about the book of Revelation, but everybody agrees that Revelation 21 is the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes back. Everybody agrees on that. And, and that's good that we agree on that. We all agree that this is the kingdom of God fully at hand, fully manifested. So keeping that in line. Now where it begins to get fuzzy is the when and the how and the who of what follows in verses 25, 26, and 27. That's where it starts to get real fuzzy. So what I'm going to try to do uh, quickly without losing you is I'm going to try to work through it and give you at least the, the major positions within orthodoxy. When I say orthodoxy, I just mean like Christianity, okay? Uh, so let me try to walk through that quickly. And the first thing I have to bring up, and this is important, the first thing we have to ask is what are weeks? Okay? Look again at verse 24. 70 weeks are decree. We need to ask the question, what are the weeks? Now, weeks is actually not really how it should be translated, I think. Uh, it's not really weeks. It's just sevens, 70 sevens. A week is seven, so there's 70 sevens, okay? That's all that it is, 70 periods of seven. And we need to interact a little bit about what that means. And what you decide that means is where the fork in the road begins to happen in terms of how you're gonna interpret this thing, okay? So here's the two ways you can interpret that, and that'll begin the disjoining of, of the roads, okay? Uh, the first way you can look at it is to say that the weeks refer to years. Seventy sevens is referring to 70 times seven years. Okay, has anybody heard that before? Okay, that, that's one position, is that the 70 sevens is referring to 70 times seven years. And, and the reason that, that people think that is because the 70-year captivity was years, and this is in the context of the 70-year captivity. So it would make sense that this is talking about years. The other side of the aisle goes, no, this isn't so much concerned with exact amount of years. This is a symbol for periods of time, which kind of makes sense too, because seven is the number of completion. 
And this isn't supposed to be worked out exactly with calendars and dates and leap years and lunars and all that. This is supposed to just be significant of three periods of time. And in those three periods of time, we're going to see the full consummation of God's redemptive work. That's the other way of looking at it. And some see both, okay? So keeping that in mind, let's, let's, let's start to work our way through. Verse 25. You guys with me? Are you okay? Do you need to get more coffee? Are you good? Okay. I'm excited. Are you guys excited? Okay. Just making sure you're awake. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to do that every five minutes just in case. <laughs> just in case someone starts snoring. Okay. Know therefore, verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven sevens or seven weeks. Then for 62 sevens or weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. Okay, I had to read that like 60,000 times. So let me just tell you, I'll make it a little more simple. Okay, we have 70 periods of seven. That period of time breaks up into three chunks. The first one is seven times seven. The other one is 62 and the other one is just seven. Let me save you the math. If that's years, that adds up to, you get a gold star if anybody knows, 490. You cheated. You got it. No, I'm just kidding. 490 years. Okay? Three periods, 490 years. If it's not talking about years, then we just have three periods, okay, that, that ultimately result in all the things we saw in 24, okay? So, we need to ask some questions. What was the going out here of the word to restore and build Jerusalem? Okay, it says in 25 that from the going out of the word to, uh, to build and restore Jerusalem, an anointed prince will come. Okay, this is something that not everybody agrees about. Some see that as the decree of Cyrus, the Persian, in the book of Ezra, chapter 1, you can read that later, in 538 BC. And that happened, by the way, almost right around the time that this was written. See, the Persians overtook the Babylonians, and Cyrus, who was named in the book of Isaiah, uh, commissions some of the exiles to go back to their homeland, we read about it in the book of Ezra, and to begin to rebuild the temple. Okay, so that's 538 BC. So some people think that's what this is talking about, could be. Others think this is talking about the decree of Artaxerxes in 458 BC, and you can read about that in Ezra chapter 7. Okay, uh, here's why different sides like those different dates. Uh, those that would see it as years, those that are doing the math and crunching the numbers and trying to figure out how it adds exactly up to Jesus' arrival, they like the Artaxerxes date because it fits. And it does. It fits. It fits pretty well. Pretty impressive, actually. Okay, so from this decree, um, there's going to be some kind of a prince that's going to show up. Who is that? Okay, um, this prince seems to be, at least, some kind of a figure that lives during the time of the rebuild of the temple, okay? Um, and, and some of that depends on how, whether or not you combine the two numbers or whether you have the, the gap between the two. But if you combine the two, then a lot of people say, well, that prince has got to be Jesus. But I would say, yeah, but it's, it, the way it reads is that there's a, a break in the, in the 
the, the first seven sevens and then the next chunk. And if there is, then this could be talking about Zerubbabel or Joshua the high priest or any of these anointed ones that God brought to, to rebuild the temple. You guys really should read Ezra and Nehemiah, by the way. It's good Bible history to understand that period of time where God rebuilt the city. Uh, but regardless, that, that's the different ways. Verse 26. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So what point is this? This is after the first two periods, an anointed one is going to come who will be cut off. Now, this is the part most people agree on. This is probably Jesus, okay? Why do we think that? Well, first of all, because of the timing, but also because Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus will be cut off, using the same language, from the land of the living. By, by his stripes we are healed, right? The Messiah, the suffering servant. So we have the first period of time, the temple is rebuilt. The second period of time, the temple has continued to be rebuilt in times of trouble. That's exactly what happened in history, by the way. The Jews rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the city, but there was constant turmoil, constant changing of hands. We read about some of that in the intertestamental period uh, a couple weeks ago with Antiochus Epiphanes and, and the Greeks and the persecution of the Jews. All of that stuff happens. At the end of that time, though, the Messiah arrives and he is cut off. What an interesting prediction. Who would think to predict that, first of all? Because remember, the Jews were anticipating not a suffering servant. What were they anticipating? A king, a militaristic, someone that's going to come in and establish. So the idea that the anointed one would come and be cut off was entirely outside of the system thinking of the Jews of the day. That's why Isaiah 53 is so uh, astounding, by the way, as well. Because it predicts the, the way that Messiah is going to ultimately be cut off for our iniquity. So interesting. So everything from this point forward really has to be after the arrival of Jesus, okay? And what we have left is we have this one last grouping of seven. And this is what people really like to argue about. What is the last seven, okay? And there's two basic schools of thought on this. One school of thought is the futurist camp or futurist slash dispensationalist camp they would see that last seven as being what? Anyone? Tribulation, okay? A future period of seven years in which time there's going to be um, this uh, rebuilding of the temple and then the Antichrist and this false covenant, all the things we're gonna see here in just a minute. That's one perspective. But the other perspective goes, that last seven weeks is talking about the period of time after Jesus rose from the dead the period of time that the Jews endured where the temple was destroyed. And you could see how both kind of work. And I'll tell you why I don't think that's a problem in a minute. So, continuing to look at verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war, desolations are decreed. So the futurist camp, the people that see this as talking about the tribulation period, they're like, see, Antichrist is going to come. The people of the prince, that's those who follow the Antichrist and get the mark of the beast. Um, they're going to destroy this new temple, this new rebuilt Jerusalem. That's why, by the way, that particular school of thought has their eyes fixed on Jerusalem. The dirt of Jerusalem, ethnic Israel. That's why 1948 was so significant in the school of thought of dispensationalism. Because they're like, man, 
It says there's going to be, they're going to be put back in their land, and they're going to eventually rebuild the temple, and that temple is going to be destroyed by this Antichrist figure. He's going to make this covenant with them for seven years. That's the way they read all this kind of stuff. The other side of it uh, looks at it a little differently. They go, no, that's not talking about some future tribulation period or rapture or any of that. That's talking about the last week is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem, and the prince here is probably talking about Titus, or, or Nero, one of those that, that persecuted the Jews in that first century, okay? You guys decide, okay? Whatever you want to do. I release you uh, to, to figure that out for yourself. Okay. We need to ask, though, who is this prince to come, and, and who are these people, and what is the temple that they destroy? Okay, well, it could, like as I, as I said, it could be a future temple, a future tribulation period, a future antichrist, or it could be referring to the Jews. Either way, Jesus is still coming back, and he's still going to win. Everybody agrees on that, amen? Okay, is there a literal millennium? Is there a literal tribulation? Is there a pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib? I don't know! Okay, but <laughs> Jesus is going to win. And I'm super excited about that. And he's coming back, okay? Now, I have opinions, and we can, we can talk about those. But uh, by the way, we recorded a podcast this week uh, with, uh, with, with um, the other pastor from Heritage, our sending church, and a couple people that know way more than me and Paul, um, Mike Robinson, who teaches theology at Pacific Bible, um, and David Carwright, who flew in to do some lectures this week, and he's got all kinds of letters and stuff next to his name. Um, and they, they, we had a conversation about eschatology. So you can check that out on our YouTube channel. Maybe that'll be helpful for you, or it might just confuse you even more. I don't know, uh, but that's okay. You can check that out. Verse 27, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing, note this, of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. Does that sound familiar to you? You remember chapter eight? Okay. Uh, Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So here's what we have in verse 27. We have this, this thing happening where someone, either the prince to come or the prince uh, that we've already seen, makes a covenant with, with, uh, with Israel for a period of seven. But then halfway through that period, he puts an end to sacrifice. Now, if you're like me, you probably grew up only ever hearing that that's talking about um, the Antichrist, and it's talking about the destruction of the temple um, in, in this kind of betrayal of the Antichrist to the Jewish people. But there's a whole other view of that that goes, actually, no, this is talking about the new covenant. Okay, it's talking about the strong covenant is the new covenant. And putting an end to sacrifice means Jesus put an end to the temple. We don't need it anymore. Okay, so that's a whole other position. And I, and I could see an argument for both in there. Now, if you guys have watched the Left Behind series and you've seen that particular um, thinking on eschatology, you can see where they get all this kind of stuff. Seven-year period, tribulation. In the middle, there's some kind of a breaking of covenant. The abomination of desolation is, is poured out until the desolator is desolated, which would be a great metal band. If you're looking for a name for a metal band, the desolation of the desolator isn't taken as far as I know. Um, <laughs> Or maybe just wing of abomination. I don't know. I don't, that's not as good. Um, regardless, okay, this is all real, real stuff. Um, so what is the wing of abomination? And when is he going to be made desolate? Again, you know, future interpretations. That's talking about Antichrist ravaging the Jews until the end of the tribulation. The preterist, which, does anybody remember what preterist means? Past. Okay, those that see this as having passed, sees that as, as taking place already in the first century. 
Here's what we know, though, by the way. No matter what your view is, you have to reconcile this with what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 15. When he told his disciples, he said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, that is the temple, let the reader understand, let, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, you could say that's talking about a future thing, and maybe it has a future application, but here's what I know. Listen, the Jews, and you just learned this from history, the Jews knew to hightail it out of Jerusalem when things started to cook with Rome. They knew. They knew to flee. How did they know? Because Jesus said, there's going to be a thing that's going to happen, and it's going to look like the abomination of desolation, and when it comes, you get out of town. So that sounds kind of preterist to me. Okay, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have a future f- fulfillment. Doesn't mean it has a doesn't have a future interpretation. Okay, are you guys confused yet? Yeah. Okay, let's go back and try to make some some sense here. We got time. So, um, is this so confusing and contested that we cannot possibly make sense of it? I would say no. I think there are things that, frankly, I changed my position on probably 60 times this week, and I will probably <laughs> consider, I will probably continue to do that, okay? Uh, I, I, think I, I think I was in all of these camps at one point, at least for five minutes this week, multiple times, okay? <laughs> but that's just in the stuff that's kind of confusing, okay? There are some things here that are not confusing. There's some things here that are crystal clear. And let me give you a good rule of interpretation when you're trying to figure out stuff that the Bible says. What you should ask is what would the original audience have understood when this material was presented to them? Now, that doesn't mean, hear me, that doesn't mean that this does not have particular application for future generations. I think it does. Let's be clear on that. But we should ask the question, what did Daniel think when the angel Gabriel appears to him and goes, hey, 490 whatevers, and there's going to be full righteousness into this, into that. It's going to be everything you possibly thought to ask for and more. What was Daniel thinking? What would the original audience have been encouraged by? And to get to that, I need to uh, unpack a little bit of what we call cultural context with you. So don't, don't lose me. This is going to come together, okay? There's some things you need to understand about the number seven, because clearly this whole thing orbits around the number seven, right? What do we know about the number seven? Well, first of all, we know that God decided when he made the cosmos to make it in seven days. So what does that tell us about the number seven? Well, I think in many ways, the number seven is meant to picture for us divine completeness. It is the finished work of God. On the seventh day, he rested. He ceased from his working. And that, in many ways, creates an eternal commemoration right, that God finished the work of creation. Then on the Mosaic, or in the Mosaic covenant, God wanted to give the picture, okay, wedding ring, right, what is a wedding ring? It tells you that you've made a promise, it tells you that you've made a covenant. What was the wedding ring of the Mosaic covenant? I think it was the Sabbath. God took the Sabbath and he said, this is going to be the way that the nations know that you're faithful to me. Okay, super important. Why? And I think it's because he wanted them to be a people a people of rest in him. I think that was the symbol that was supposed to shine through there. I think he, oh, the Jews, they're the people that trust God. They're the people that rest. They're the people that let the land rest because they know God is in control. It's the idea of Sabbath there, okay? Here's what you need to understand. Sabbath has different layers. The first layer is obvious. Day seven, you're supposed to rest, keep it holy. Day seven in in that covenant. 
The second layer is not the Sabbath day. It's what's called the Sabbath, what? Year. Every seventh year, Israel was supposed to Sabbath for a whole year. And that doesn't mean that they, they didn't get off the couch for a year. It means that they let the land reset. Okay, it was an agricultural reality. They were supposed to let the, ran, the land reset for one year every seven years. And guess what? They never did it. In fact, they never did it so many times that ultimately God actually needed to force it. Let me tell you what 2 Chronicles 36 says. You can jot it down and read it later. 2 Chronicles 36, 20. It says, He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword. That's Daniel and, and the, the exiles. They became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. That's when they got to go home. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. That's what Daniel was reading last week. Listen. Until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. That's what Chronicles tells us. Chronicles gives us a key to understand the reason for the exile. They were in exile 70 years because they neglected 70 years worth of Sabbath years. Okay? It gets cooler. There is another layer to Sabbath. We have the Sabbath day. We have the Sabbath year. Here's what we learn in Leviticus 25, starting in verse 4. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or rather, uh, rather grapes or your undressed vine. It's talking about Sabbath year. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself, for your male, female servants, for your hard worker, the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in the land. All its yield shall be for food. Now, tune in here. Verse 8. You shall count. Listen. You sh listen. <laughs> you shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years. So that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Seven times seven is what? 49. Very good, class. Then you shall sound a loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, and you shall sound the trumpet throughout the land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property, that's every servant, every bond servant, every indentured servant gets to go home. Debts paid, righteousness fulfilled. Each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. And in it, neither, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows. Now let's start to connect some dots here. Okay, what is our, what is our decree here in the book of Daniel? 70 times seven, which equals 490. What is the jubilee? Seven times seven, which is 49. Here's what I think. I think it's actually very simple. I think that the point that we're supposed to get here is that when Jesus comes, in both advents, both arrivals, we get the jubilee of jubilees. The 70 times 7, not just the 7 times 7, but the 70 times 7, the complete completeness, the final jubilee. And guess what? All the slaves go home. 
All redemption is paid for. Perfect and full righteousness comes. And the trumpet sounds, decreeing that all God's people are atoned for and get to go home. Now, what was Daniel praying for in the first place? I want to go home. And like my two-year-old saying, Baba, God says, oh, buddy, you don't even understand the home that I have for you. It's not just some overgrown piece of dirt that you got to go rebuild during the period of Ezra and Nehemiah just so it can get destroyed again by the Romans. Oh, no, Daniel, it's so much better than that. Well, what is it? It's exactly what we see in verse 24. To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness and seal both vision and profit, and to anoint the most holy place. That's the gospel. It's the jubilee of jubilees. And Jesus bought and paid for it. We're waiting for him to come in the, the theological term is consummate what he has inaugurated. Okay, he bought it. He's the king. But we're between the two advents. This is really good news. And it, and it really, what it does is it goes, the Jews would have seen that. They would have heard that 490. They would have been like jubilee. Guarantee it. Because they knew Leviticus. They would have been like, this is the jubilee of jubilees. This is the full sum total of God's redemptive program looked at in one telescoping image. So the point is that the fix of the exile was only partial. The full and final fix comes in Christ after the work of both advents. He is and will establish the people of God in the place of God with the imputed righteousness of God when the real jubilee, the complete completeness of our eternal Sabbath comes. That's the point. That is clear as day. Clear as a bell. And guarantee the Jews would have understood that. So what does that mean for all the details that we can't agree on? Well, I can only give you some opinions here. I think it means that we are some degree on the front side of things that haven't happened yet that make these things a little confusing. I, I think there's going to come a time in history where there will be no question what some of these things are. And, and I'm kind of a futurist, so I think a lot of this stuff is still going to happen, okay? Um, I think mountains are the best way to illustrate this, okay? Have you guys ever looked at a mountain and it looks like one big mountain? And, and it is one big mountain, right? But as you get closer to that mountain, you start to realize, actually, that big mountain has two peaks. Jesus showed up how many times? Well, how many times will he have shown up? Twice, okay? Ultimately, right? So, so you have two peaks, Jesus' first advent and Jesus' second advent. Looks like one mountain. And in the Old Testament, the way the Old Testament authors paint it, it looks like one mountain. That's why they were so confused about Jesus in the Old Testament. The, the Messiah is going to be a colonel, a general, militaristic David, king. He's going to be a suffering servant. How do those two things work? Okay. Two, two horizons, one, one mountain. So as you get closer, you begin to realize, oh, there's some space in here. There's, there's some gap in here. And I think what we're looking at is verse 24 is the one big mountain. And then 25, 26, and 27, it starts to get a little confusing because there's a telescoping thing happening there. Or it's like when you're, Alistair Begg used this. I thought it was helpful. It's like when you're climbing up a mountain and you think you're at the top until you get there and you realize there's more. Okay? I, I think Daniel can only see to the end of the exile, but God's saying, actually, there's a whole nother top to this thing. And we've seen, we've seen part of it. You'll notice in verse 24, these six things, some of them have happened in Jesus. And some of them we're still waiting for in Jesus' return. And, and so that's why theologians call it the already not yet. Already not yet. 
okay, or inaugurated eschatology. We're, we're like in this middle place where God has started things that will for sure happen, and we're waiting. We're in the middle place of God's redemptive program. Does that make sense? Okay, hopefully. <laughs> Says as she yawns, okay. <laughs> She's like, yeah, yeah, that's good, oh, that's good. So what's my view? Well, I, I'm not going to bore you with that. Uh, but I'm going to tell you this. I kind of I think that, that there's a dualist thing happening here. I think, I think that there's dual fulfillment in a lot of these things. I do think there's a sense in which Jesus, uh, when he told the, the Jews to get out of Jerusalem, he meant it. And they did. And I do think Nero was a type of antichrist. And I think there's been many types of antichrist. But I think there's going to be another one to come. And I think we ought to read that this way. Okay? That's, that's kind of my position. So let me, let me end here. I have four minutes to do what I was supposed to have 15 minutes to do. Let me tell you why the gospel is the best news. Let me tell you why verse 24 is the best answer for all of the, the needs and the desires of humanity. Let me tell you why God's answer, answer to Daniel's prayer is so much more than he possibly even would have thought to ask. Five reasons, write them down quick. Number one, because without Jesus, we are stuck with our past sins. Without Jesus, we are stuck with our past sins. We are powerless to take back the wrong things we have done. Have you noticed that? And that's such a discouraging thing to face. That, that doesn't matter how much good I do. I cannot undo the bad that I've once done. But the gospel is good news in this. That Jesus has nailed every sin that you have done to the cross. And he has taken your sin on himself, and given you his righteousness. It's called double imputation. You get his perfect life, perfect performance, perfect scorecard, and he takes your sin. And it's fully dealt with. We see that right here in the text. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. That's why Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 2, that Jesus, making purifications for sin, he sat down. Let's see if anybody remembers the series we did on Hebrews. Why did Jesus sit down? Because it was done. Priests don't sit in the temple. There's always more sacrifices to make. But Jesus, the full and final high priest, sits down because atonement is finished. That's what he said on the cross. It's finished. So without Jesus, we're stuck in our past sins. Number two, without Jesus, we're stuck with our present selves. Listen, what good is a clean slate if I'm still in a broken state? What good is a clean slate if I'm still in a broken slate? Great, you paid all of my sin, but I just sinned again since you paid that. So something else needs to change. Well, first of all, Jesus paid for our sins, past, present, and future. That's good news. But what really needs to change is not just what we did, it's what we want to do. That's what really needs to change. Dallas Willard always says, our wanter is broken, right? It's what we want that's wrong. It needs to be changed. And the gospel answers this too, and it answers it in our text. It says that in, in, in verse 24 that he's going to put an end to sin to finish transgression. That means that at some point, sin is going to drop off the map. Not only do our desires change through being born again by the Spirit, but at some point, we will no longer live in an existence of sin. It's really good news. Number three, without Jesus, we're stuck in a broken world. So you might say, great, so my, my sins in the past are paid for, and my sins in the future are taken care of, but the world is still uh, cosmically dangerous. Have you noticed that? It's broken. It's fallen. 
the text answers this too. It says to bring in everlasting righteousness. Now many take everlasting righteousness not to be referring to righteousness morally, but to be referring to rightness cosmically. Meaning God is going to bring in a universe that is no longer broken. No longer attacking us, no longer trying to kill us. We live in a fallen cosmos. God is going to give us a new one. That's why Romans, Paul says, that creation was subjected to futility, futility. That creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It says that creation is groaning, waiting to birth this child of the new creation. The gospel is this in verse 24, that we get a new world. Number four, without Jesus, we would always be stuck in the dark. Without Jesus, we would always be stuck in the dark. Notice in our text, it says, to seal both vision, verse 24, to seal both vision and prophet. In other words, when Jesus comes, all of the promises are sealed, finished, answered, complete, okay? All of the promises of God are what? Yes, in the person of Jesus Christ, okay? This is good news. This is good news. That's why Jesus on the road to Emmaus, he pulled his disciples aside and he began to show them how everything in the word was fulfilled in him. He is the full and final work of God. It's really good news. Okay, it's so cool. In Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 13, it says love never ends. You guys heard this part? Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes... What's that talking about? It's not talking about the canon of scripture. It's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. It's talking about when Jesus is forever in our midst. When the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. And then he ends this by saying, you know it. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest is love. Why? Because faith and hope are going to end. But love never is. Why, why does love never end? Because it's a person. Because it's the Trinity. Because it's God himself. There's going to be a time where we don't need promises anymore. It's going to be a time where we don't need Bible anymore because we have Jesus. You understand that? You understand that the, the Bible is the word of God, but the word of God is more than the Bible? Jesus is the word of God. The Bible tells us of Jesus, right? Jesus is the eternal word of God. That's, that's what we need. And, and, and he, he shows up. It's the seal of vision and prophecy. Last one, without Jesus, number five, without Jesus, we could never go home. I want you to remember that the crux of this prayer was about going home. Okay, and there's nothing wrong with dirt. God made dirt, and dirt don't hurt, right? Mom always used to say, okay. God made us to live on dirt, not in a floaty cloud. And when you read the whole Bible, you realize that God's eternal destiny for us is a place. It's a physical place. And so it's no mistake that in our text, it says the sixth thing he lists is to anoint a most holy what? Place. What's the holy place? It's the holy of holies. It's the holy of holies. What does that mean? It means at some point we are going to have a forever holy of holies. You've heard me say this before, but in the book of Revelation, you, you see the new heavens and the new earth, and it's a cube. What else is a cube in the Bible? The holy of holies. The whole point is that at some point, God is going to make the whole world the holy of holies. He's going to be uh, in our presence in an unrestricted manner forever. This is really good news. 
So there's a lot of ambiguity in this text. I would encourage you guys to study it. But at the end of the day, when you step back, what we see here is we see God ushering in, in the person of Jesus, in both of his advents, we see him ushering in the jubilee of jubilees, the complete completeness, the 70 times seven. God is going to save. He's going to save completely, totally, fully. The gospel is the good news unto salvation. Amen? Okay, let's stand.